Hi, and welcome back to the Forget the Wine podcast, Reclaiming the Book Club. Remember when book clubs were actually about books? Madeline and I were tired of the book club being portrayed as a thinly veiled ladies wine night in popular culture, so we decided to fight this bastardization ourselves. Join us as we examine and interpret modern novels. And okay, if you want to drink a glass of wine while you listen, we won't judge you. Well, we won't audibly judge you. Okay. Hey, everyone. This is Madeline. I'm currently speaking to you from the French countryside near Limoges, um, sort of in central France. And today I painted a chair. I watered the garden. And um, yeah, I'm just enjoying the beautiful bird song and picturesqueness that is the French countryside. <laughs> and I'm joined here by Laura. Hi, Laura. Hello. Yes, I'm not quite as glamorous, but it is spring in Minnesota, so things are getting a little bit more tolerable around here. Uh, We had uh, 20 inches of snow on April 15th, and it's finally melted off, and we're enjoying the sun. Uh, So uh, this week we'll be discussing a visit uh, from The Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan, um, which was published in 2010 and won the Pulitzer for Literature. So we'll get into a little bit why we're reading a book that was published so long ago, relatively, um, was since we've been choosing more modern books to read. First, I just kind of want to get into a quick summary of the book. Since it spans so many different stories, I'm paraphrasing Will Blythe's review from the New York Times because I thought he did a good job of synthesizing the tone of the book. So he says, How wide a circumference can Egan achieve in a visit from the goon squad while still maintaining any sort of coherence and momentum? How loosely can she braid the skein of connections and still have something that hangs together? She hands off the narrative from one protagonist to another in a wild relay race that will end with the same characters with which it begins, while dispensing with them for years at a time. The story starts with Sasha, a kleptomaniac who works for Benny, a record producer, who is a protege of Lou, who seduced Jocelyn, who was loved by Scotty, who once played guitar for the Flaming Dildos, a San Francisco punk band for which Benny once played bass guitar before marrying Stephanie, who is charged with trying to resurrect the career of bloated rock legend Bosco. So basically, it just kind of goes on and on and and, and weaves this web of characters who are all interconnected. So all of the above takes place in 13 chapters covering 40 years or so, ranging backwards and forwards in time, each composed from a different point of view. So there's 13 different centers, 13 different peripheries, and yet everything hangs together, connected by a tone of simmering regret arising from love's wreckage and time's relentless devouring. So it really is, we'll be talking about it kind of in sections because it's divided into 13 chapters that have all different narrators and do in some sense stand alone as short stories. So we'll be referring to chapter names throughout to delineate between the different stories. Yeah, and one thing, Laura, did you get a sense of, even though it is 13 different narrators and different tones in the book, did you get a sense of any protagonists or any sort of main characters that the book seemed to revolve around as you were reading it? To me, I literally drew a web of characters (laughs) while I was reading the book just to track how everyone's connected because as you got a sense of in the synopsis, it was like, this person's eighth cousin who was married to this person who worked for B. That is really how the book progresses. But anyways, at the center of my web were Sasha and Benny. Um, So record producer Benny and his kleptomaniac assistant Sasha. And everything kind of webbed out from those two. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Those um, and the book starts with uh, with one of the with Sasha's section, and from there, and the second one is Benny's, and from there it really does progress. It seems as if everyone in the book is connected to that onset and that core. And I was just watching an interview with Jennifer Egan today, where she she does blatantly say that they were the two protagonists 
to her narrative as well. Yeah. And it's interesting how you get a sense of that, even though there are 13 different perspectives going on throughout the novels. Well, let's talk a little bit about why we chose this book that was published in 2010. We've been choosing more recent books. And actually, in our like docket, in our plan, we had started to read another book by the same author, Manhattan Beach, which was published, I think, in 2017. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was Jennifer Egan's most recent effort. So we started with Manhattan Beach. I think we both had the audiobook version. And we were chatting to each other as we went and could barely make it through the first third of the book. Um, I think I got almost halfway before I said, let's call it quits, even though I really hate to abandon a book. It's very rare for me. But Manhattan Beach was just too, too, it was a dud for me. It was too slow. It was very much focused on a lot of telling versus showing. Um, A lot of the characters were very blatant in their introspection to a point where the tone became very dry. And it didn't seem very in place with the time set. Um, There were these gangsters and mobsters that were really, really introspective and aware of gender roles and the place of women in society. And it didn't really strike a very true chord with me um, and had a lot of trouble holding my attention. And it was interesting because I started reading Goon Squad because I had heard such good things about it. And I think, Laura, you mentioned that it was a good book. And that might be why you were interested in Manhattan Beach. Um, and I was just blown away by how engaging Goon Squad was in comparison and how that tone of the characters being very introspective and very having a lot of insight into their psyches worked so well in Goon Squad and really fell flat in Manhattan Beach. What were your thoughts on on that, how we progressed with that book? Yeah, I, so I read Goon Squad when I was 20, when it came out, and I really liked it, and I was struck by how fun of a read it was, even though it was this Pulitzer-winning piece of literature, and I was in school at the time with a bunch of other assigned reading. This was like candy to read. It went so quick and down so easy fast-paced. It sounded like it was coming from a modern perspective. Um, So I was excited to try Manhattan Beach, even though it's a genre historical fiction, which I generally steer way away from. Egan's uh, writing was was strong enough to, to make me give it a chance. But I was so bored by this book, I can't even tell you. I just truly could not get through it. And I think one of Egan's strengths in her writing is setting a place and drawing characters and letting us know who characters are with just a little piece of information or a little quirk as soon as we first meet them. Um, And with something with a super wide scope and literally probably 100 plus characters like Goon Squad, I think her writing style is really well suited for that because we get just a quick look at all these characters and she's so efficient with word use that Mm -hmm. we know a ton about them right away. But Manhattan Beach has a much smaller scope. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it was somehow very repetitive. It really did feel as if I was sloughing through a lot of stuff about old car models and um, old t- Like, it, there were constant references to the time period that made me feel like Egan was just trying to show us how much research she did versus uh, her incorporating it and using it as a part of the narrative um, as a way to strengthen the story at its core. The story was really lacking for that novel for me as well. But like you said, a lot of those traits worked really well in Goon Squad, which is why we chose to talk about Goon Squad in this conversation rather than focus on Manhattan Beach. So with the structure of Goon Squad, it's presented as an interconnected universe rather than a collection of short stories. So you had in your notes, what what is this separation between within set as many short stories rather than one universe where all these characters are connected? Yeah, I, I was interested in that because as I was reading the book, I, I found myself wondering, did these stories flow naturally together and she really felt like the characters that these events happening to lived in the same universe or were they existing short stories that were in her brain that she wove together after the fact? Um, so I found that three of the short stories were published separately in the New Yorker as simple short story pieces. 
uh, before the book's publication. So that tells me that maybe it was a little bit of both. Maybe there wasn't always an overarching vision for all these characters to be part of the same universe. And I'm of two minds about the effectivity of, of, of connecting all the short stories. I think it's cool to be able to kind of say, oh, this fantastical story that's really dramatic happened to this person's ex-wife, and I see how it's connected and how cool. But at times it, it distracted me. I, when I was updating my map of how all the characters were connected, I think sometimes it took me emotionally out of the book and distracted me from connecting with the characters of the story. And I thought sometimes there might have been a message to a short story that stood alone nicely on its own that got overshadowed because Egan felt like the message of all the short stories had to be connected, uh, being like the passage of time. For me, I was surprised by how engaging this book was in terms of a momentum, a progression, even though they were separate short stories or separate perspectives in separate times, I was constantly wanting to read the next one because we get little snippets of these smaller characters here and there and and little sorts of questions and mysteries like how did that come about? We find out there's a suicide revealed to us. There's a death of a college friend revealed to us that are addressed later in other characters' stories. So I was really impressed by how she was able to create a momentum and a progression that I think might be more difficult in a collection of short stories, which can be read bit by bit. So I really appreciated that side of it. So again, I was listening to this conversation. She had, a, it was like, I think a Google interview where she came to Google and spoke to the employees there about her book. And she said that really there was an abstract idea that kept um, that she had in her mind as she did all of these stories. Um, and that question was, what would a contemporary novel about time look like? Rather than multi-volumed, huge exploration of time and a person's life, she tried to make it more contemporary and condensed in a way that would be engaging to viewers, but still have that question of time. And I thought she did it very successfully. I think the reason that some of the sections weren't as engaging to me is because I wasn't able to connect to the characters in the same way others based on maybe based on my own personal experience. But it made me feel as if maybe Egan didn't fully connect to some of those characters as well, but mm -hmm. they fit, they fit within, they really pulled her curiosity. But as she developed them, yeah, there was not a deep heartfelt connection between her writing and the formation of the characters. Yeah, I think part of that, too, was I was reading about her process for writing the book, and she said she imposed three rules on herself for each chapter of the book. One, that each chapter had to be about a different character. Two, that each chapter had to have a different mood, tone, and approach. And three, that each chapter had to stand on its own. So we can talk about whether she was successful in that. I know for you, I think some of the gimmicks were distracting as well, quote-unquote gimmicks. And one thing that seemed to have created a lot of buzz about this novel when it came out in 2010 was the chapter that's written as a PowerPoint. And I think this might have something to do with why so many people associate this book with technology and all these existential questions about what technology is doing to our society. It struck me that Egan didn't really write have this intention when she first wrote it was all, even though technology does come up a lot in the book, it seemed to be more in relation to the music industry than anything. But because there was this chapter written as a PowerPoint, everyone sort of jumped on it as this big um, commentary on technology and the role it plays in our world. So at the time, it was sort of stood out, it was sort of revolutionary to include this format in a novel. But for me, I really appreciated the PowerPoint format in that chapter because it's written from the perspective of an older sister. Her younger brother has Asperger's. So he views the world and his interpretation of the world as very technical and very methodical. And for me, that really fit well with the progression of the PowerPoint. But maybe we can talk about that a little, little bit more in depth. But I know you said some of the gimmicky pieces distracted you from 
from a few of the sections as well. They did. Um, so there's one chapter, yes, like you said, that's written as a PowerPoint, and it's from the perspective of, like, an 11 or 12-year-old who's creating this PowerPoint to tell us about her family. Then there's another chapter uh, that's written in the second person, and that's, I, I understand the reason why she wrote both chapters that way. Um, it makes a lot of sense. The chapter written in the second person has is about uh, a character who's in a lot of emotional turmoil, and I think it is uh, emotionally affecting for the reader for us to feel extra connected there and that the narrator be speaking to us and putting us in the shoes of this character that's having such a struggle um, emotionally. But it also kept pulling me out of the story just because it felt so effortful that she was separating these 13 stories and writing them all in a different way. Um, and it mm -hmm. felt one of the things that kept coming up for me was that a lot of sections of this book felt more like writing exercises that you would do, you know, mm -hmm. to improve your ability to storytell under these tough constraints than really her choosing what would be the best method to communicate with us the story. Uh, but I do mm. want to put a disclaimer out there. I think I'm coming off like more negative about this book than I really feel. I, <laughs> I love a lot of this book. I think it flows really nicely, and I totally enjoyed the time reading this. But just for the sake of a discussion, I felt less positive about the chapters that were non-traditionally than you did, I think. And that's one of the nice thing about things about exploring these books more in depth is pulling out the pieces that really made it special as compared to what might have fallen a bit more flat. But yeah, uh, do you want to talk about some of the sections more in depth that really worked well for you that you found to be poignant and slow written? Yeah, I would love to. First, one of my favorite sections is titled Ask Me If I Care, and it's the story of Benny, the record producer's high school punk rock band, and it's told from the perspective of probably a 14-year-old girl, and it really, for me, beautifully captured the scary, exciting feeling of growing up and things feel fun and new, but also so scary. And a lot of the story focuses on record producer who's Lou, and he is older and creepy, and he's in a relationship with our narrator's best friend, who's also 15, 16. He is just such a well-drawn creep to me mm -hmm. uh, that it really had an emotional impact on me when reading it. Did you feel the same? Yeah, I think that, well, I think both of those elements she did so well, that sort of coming of age, um, rage against the world. Uh, one of the quotes, they're in this punk band together, as you've mentioned, and the, the narrator of the chapter, Rhea, Rhea, I believe, says, where we live in the sunset, the ocean is always just over your shoulder and the houses have Easter egg colors. But the second Scotty lets the garage door slam down, we're all suddenly enraged, all of us. So she's talking about how there, this, there's this turmoil of being a teenager and being surrounded by all this beauty in California, these picture-perfect sorts of families and homes, but yet they're, they're all just struggling and um, wanting to cr kind of capture life and um, anger inside of them. Um, and therefore, and some of them deal with it better than others. And Jocelyn falls into this relationship with Lou, who picks her up hitchhiking, I, I believe, is how the relationship starts. And yeah, that part of the chapter really did strike me very deeply um, because she goes in depth with the progression of the relationship. You see how he tells her never to call him. He will always call her. She's but um, because he's this old, cool, older guy, she feels like she's being elevated somehow out of this life that she's so frustrated by. And there was one other quote. They, they end up going to a music show together, a punk show, and uh, they're in the crowd with Lou, Rhea and Jocelyn. And um, jo Rhea looks over and sees that Jocelyn has started performing oral sex on Lou. And, and Rhea has this sort of out-of-body experience where she's, she knows that something is wrong, but she doesn't really want to admit it. 
Um, and she says, but I stand there while Lou mashes Jocelyn's head against himself again and again. So I don't know how she can breathe until it starts to seem like she's not even Jocelyn, but some kind of animal or machine that can't be broken. It's interesting that you picked out that quote because that was something that stuck with me from the first time I read the book eight years ago. Mm -hmm. So that was a visual to me that was so well realized and disturbing that it stuck Mm -hmm. with me viscerally for eight years. Um, And I think something that Rhea says um, after she has this experience where she's standing next to uh, Jocelyn performing oral sex on Lou is she feels violated by the experience and having witnessed it. And she hopes that it doesn't mean that she's had sex with Lou and she's just confused and scared. And I really thought it captured the experience of being 15 and experimenting with things that are on the edge of your comfort level and kind of running up to that line and then running back from it and and having regret uh, just captured that really nicely. Yeah. And the wording she chose here as describing Jocelyn as, becoming some sort of machine that can't be broken. And that really stuck with me because even though she's her best friend and she's physically there beside her, she's almost has to dehumanize Jocelyn to really, to begin to comprehend it. And there's this element of seeing her best friend has become this sort of vehicle or this object for, for pleasure or completely dehumanizes her. And the fact that her friend can have that sort of out of body experience, then what does that say for, you know, the men, the man for Lou that's involved? Of course, that's all the only thing he, way he's ever really seen Jocelyn is as this vehicle. So that, that really struck me as well. Um, and, uh, that whole chapter was, yeah, really memorable and, was one of the, I think probably one of my favorite sections of the book and just the way it really um, struck me. So another one of your favorite sections here, and we have a little difference of opinion on this one, is actually (laughs) about Lou as well. I think it's maybe six years prior to when he's having the affair with Jocelyn, and it's about when he travels with his two children on a safari to Africa. Do you want to talk about why you liked that section? Um, this focuses on, it, it has a, in, rather than the first person narration, uh, it has third person narration and you move between perspectives of characters. So you sort of see things from his daughter's side, um, from the girlfriend's side, Mindy, um, and from the son's side, um, Rolf. And what really struck me with this was how Lou is the, the sort of patriarch of the family, um, how I think Rolf is pretty young. He's like 11 years old, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but how he is slowly starting to realize the man that his father is. Um, and his older sister has already begun to see it and rebel in her own way. Um, you know, she's dancing with the men in the safari just to make her father angry. And um, the fa- Lou reacts by pulling Rolf aside and, and taking him into his confidence. And he tells him, you know, women are crazy. Your mother was crazy or she wasn't crazy enough in the right way. Um, she, when later he gets an inkling that Mindy might have not, not be faithful to him. He tells his son, you know, women are cunts. And, um, and this, this is, uh, it was really interesting for me because it's, like watching the innocence of this young boy being shattered in slow motion piece by piece um, within this sort of intense family trip um, where they're spending lots of time together. And he knows that something is wrong and he knows there's something wrong with, with the relationship with Mindy, but, and he feels inexplicably rageful at her um, for ways he can't explain, um, but he doesn't fully understand it. Um, So that, that for me is why I really enjoyed reading this chapter was watching the dynamics of this family and watching how this, this feeling of um, male sort of power and um, lose sense of needing to win is why he ends up marrying Mindy um, and need this sense of ownership that he needs to feel over his family and over his, him needing to have the upper hand in his relationship. Um, so I found all of that very fascinating, but it sounds like you didn't 
really enjoy this chapter quite as much. Yeah, and I don't know whether it was because the characters were just so unpleasant to spend time with. Um, I also think it's important for the rest of our discussion to note that Rolf, uh, we learn in the next short story, he ends up committing suicide later in life. Uh, so I think we're left to wonder what kind of an effect growing up with Lou and with that vision of relationships being power struggles, like you're saying, rather than something that's built um, in love affected him and how that can break a person. I guess with the safari chapter, um, the moment that really stood out to me is when Lou learns that maybe Mindy was cheating on him with the safari guide. And he says to Rolf, all women are C-words. It felt like this chapter was a bit of an excuse to throw that punchline in, and it was kind of all leading up to that moment where we see how vile Lou really is and how he kind of just turns on all women as a gender as soon as he feels threatened. Um, so I guess I just maybe wasn't up for an explanation for an exploration and spending more time with like these vile men who think that they're entitled uh, to women's attention and devotion when we know Lou's obviously not faithful in his relationships. He's uh, assaulting girls in punk clubs and, and all of that. So, so maybe I don't know that there was any issue with the writing that I had here. I think I just, was exhausted by the character of Lou and didn't want to spend any more time with them. And it sounds like Out of Body was another chapter that this is one of the unique ones that we talked about that's in the second perspective that really struck you. And it struck me as well. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what you enjoyed with this section? Yes. I just, for the first time through this book, like I said, it's entertaining and it clips along at such a good pace that you always want to start the next chapter. But Out of Body was the first time that I felt really emotionally affected by this book. Um, it's, it's about Rob, Rob who's mm-hmm. a, who goes to college with Sasha and her boyfriend, Drew. And Rob is deeply, deeply in love with Sasha. He also has some emotional issues. He's attempted suicide, and we find out that he's also had a sexual encounter with Sasha's boyfriend, Drew. But at least I get the sense that it's a substitution for his love for Sasha. He's just trying to get as close to her as possible. I don't know how much real desire there was there. Yeah, I thought I thought he also had an experience in high school with another guy, though. Was that... Is that correct? Yeah. So I think for me, it struck me as more he was really struggling with his um, sexuality or maybe bisexuality. It's never quite made clear to us because um, he doesn't seem to fully understand it. Um, But so I think it might have been a mix of that. And he really did feel this strong attachment and attraction to Drew Um, in the way he described him. And the reason I think it might be separate than his his desire for Sasha is I think there's one section where he that struck me because Drew is from Wisconsin here. He talks about how Drew, he pulls him close and he smells like lakes and woods and like Wisconsin, (laughs) which, um, of course, stuck out in my mind. But I think it also shows that he might have been struggling with true attraction for Drew um, in addition to his very affectionate, close um, feelings for Sasha. And maybe that's part of what I loved about this chapter is it does capture the feeling of being 19 or 20 and you feel like you love everyone and any new Mm -hmm. person that you meet is going to be the one to come and make your life what it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where Rob has drowned and is inhaling water and Mm -hmm. I really love the way that uh, it's written, so I'll just read a passage here. You kneel beside her, breathing in the familiar smell of Sasha's sleep, whispering into her ear some mix-up, I'm sorry, and I believe you, and I'll always be near you, protecting you, and I will never leave you. I'll be curled around your heart for the rest of your life until the water pressing my shoulders and chest crushes me awake and I hear Sasha screaming into my face, fight, fight, fight. So I think that this is also, that passage was just affecting for me. I thought it really captured the feeling of being so in love with someone, feeling like they can really save you. And obviously he's literally in a uh, life-threatening situation there. But also, 
um, the whole chapter's been written in second person, and it switches perspective in that passage. It says, you kneel beside her, and then, until the water pressing my shoulders and chest crushes me awake, and I hear Sasha screaming into my face, fight, fight, fight. So, Ooh, I didn't catch that, Yeah, actually. That's really interesting. And we find out, actually, that he doesn't survive. He, like, dies when he's drowning in this mm-hmm. passage. So I thought it was significant mm-hmm. as he's passing or whatever mm-hmm. maybe his soul's leaving his body and also we're no longer seeing from his perspective like as he passes mm-hmm. away the mm-hmm. uh, perspective leaves him as well so I thought that that was kind of a cool little writing trick and was yeah. an example of where finally for me the content of the book superseded the form like it wasn't just a fun writing trick she was doing it really made sense here yeah, that's that's really great. And there was another point, portion of this where I thought the second person moved worked really well because um, Rob has previously tried to commit suicide um, at the telling at the, this point in the story, and he's always pushing his friends to see how they react and how you know how far they he can push them with them being so careful around him. Um, and there's a point where he says. It's all kind of moving and sweet, except you're not completely there. A part of you is a few feet away or above thinking, good, they'll forgive you. They won't desert you. And the question is, which one is really you? The one saying or doing whatever it is or the one watching. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was also kind of a tie into the reader as well. This, well, we're, we're as the reader, we're always watching what they do, but then speaking in the second person it's we're invited to sort of imagine ourselves as the character um, to be the one saying or doing. So I really liked that portion of it as well. Yeah. It sounds like maybe that's the chapter that we're in the most agreement on. It's one <laughs> of the strongest in the book. Yeah, definitely. And so next final, this will be the last outstanding chapter we talk about, but it was one I think I liked better than you did. And it was mm-hmm. called goodbye, my love and uh, it's the story of Sasha's uncle going to search for her in Venice because she's run away. Her family's nervous. They don't know where she is. Um, so Ted finds Sasha in, in Naples, not Venice, sorry, and they go to a dinner in a club together, and he really feels like he's connecting with his niece and she's revealing a lot about herself and her life in Naples, and um, they share a really poignant hug in the club, and then he realizes he's been pickpocketed, Um, and maybe Sasha's life in Naples wasn't all that she portrayed it as, and that she's struggling a little bit more um, than he thought. So the reason I loved this chapter was just, it was another one that had heart to me, and I loved getting to learn more about Sasha since she was one of the characters that was most consistent through the book. Um, and there is some beautiful writing in it as well. This is after Sasha has taken Ted's wallet and they've made up afterwards. And she's sort of admitted that she doesn't have this fantasy life that she's woven to him and that she really is struggling. She says, Uh, Ted says, and for an instant, he would remember Naples sitting with Sasha in her tiny room, the jolt of surprise and delight he'd felt when the sun finally dropped into the center of her window and was captured inside her circle of wire. Now he turned to her, grinning. Her hair and face were aflame with orange light. See, Sasha muttered, eyeing the sun, it's mine. So I, this is after she's revealed that she's like sweeping the floors for free rent Um, But she's trying to kind of convince Ted, I have freedom, I have the sun, this is Mm -hmm. mine and all I need to live, and that resonated Mm -hmm. well with me. And I will say that ending, that part of the section was probably my favorite part, and maybe the only part that I liked (laughs) from that chapter, actually. Um, Because to me, um, this one felt very just very forced and artificial Um, because Ted, her uncle, he is obviously very dissatisfied in his life and um, he takes this opportunity to go get an expenses paid trip 
to um, to Naples, paid by his brother-in-law, um, in order to ser- quote unquote search for Sasha. But in reality, he is using the time to find himself and to explore all this art and thinking, oh, I'll eventually get to looking for her. Um, and we hear some back background on his dead marriage and his total lack of emotional connection now with his wife. Um, and so when, and then of course he accidentally runs into Sasha in the the middle of Naples somehow, like it all just felt very, um, predictable to me. Um, and, uh, and maybe I just had a sense of how Sasha would react from what we knew of her from previous chapters, but I thought, oh, there's no way she's actually going to, you know, respond well to him being there and trying to integrate himself into her life. Um, so for me, it, it, it felt a little bit predictable and, and I thought there was some weird, like sexual tension when they were at dinner at the club together and like kind of drunk and dancing together. I was like, okay, this, what's happening? (laughs) And then of course she robs him and runs away. To me, it just seemed like a very sort of predictable story. And the only part I appreciated was the very end where they have this final connection and the little section we hear about how he was involved in her very, very early childhood and felt like a protector to her at that time. And, and that's fair enough. I think that this is another section where maybe Egan's rules as far as each chapter has to focus on a different character get in her way. Because I think mm-hmm. what we learn about Sasha in this chapter is so much more interesting and significant than what we learn about Ted her uncle Ted to me is kind of a dud of a character and it's wasted space trying to get (laughs) his background um but I did love what this chapter revealed about Sasha um okay well I think we want to talk about some of our least favorite chapters a little (laughs) bit and the first one is called A to B it's a very short section and it is uh Stephanie who is Benny the record executive's ex-wife she is a PR executive, and one of her clients is Bosco, this aging rock star. So um, they go to his house and, and talk about revitalizing his career, and basically he's in very poor health, he's gained weight, he's no longer good looking, he can hardly play his instrument anymore, and what he says is that he wants to go on a suicide tour. Um, he knows that he can't He's not in good enough health to play all these shows, so you don't know when it'll happen, you don't know where it'll happen, but he's going to die on this tour. Um, And I just did not, like, Mm -hmm. the books about aging and the passage of time, we get it. I just felt that this was (laughs) too cute, like the idea of a suicide tour maybe was something, a concept that came to her and she tried to create this story around it what did you think yeah to do with the music industry too the aging rock star formula yeah it didn't yeah this was I wasn't very interested by this chapter I I didn't care about Bosco at all or um Stephanie I thought the for me the part that I found most interesting about this was how Stephanie and Benny who are married at the time try to integrate and fit into this really posh um, country club community. And in the very first, and it's only, uh, really in the very beginning of it that we see it, um, where they just feel very discluded. And Stephanie thinks they were snobs or idiots or both. Stephanie told herself, yet she was inexplicably crushed by their coldness. So that to me was interesting how they are both struggling with their identity. And even though they've been so happy as these, um, wild music, producers, concert goers, uh, most of their life, they're struggling with their identities now. And, but it was pretty predictable. Like, uh, of course, um, Benny starts sleeping with her tennis mate who she hates, um, who's this, uh, and he does it to prove himself because he feels very out of place in this community. And, um, he's Hispanic and it's a very white community. So I thought it was really predictable. And the whole aging rock star suicide tour thing was really random and forced and out of place. <laughs> and then it really doesn't come to anything. Like we find out 
later there's a little blurb that says oh remember that suicide tour he went on it turns out he got better and like refound himself yeah and it was yeah the final chapter is set in the future and it's about a sound engineer alex who's been on a date with sasha and he is trying to put together a comeback show for benny's old friend Scotty. This all gets convoluted. But anyway, <laughs> he works with an intern to set this up, and that intern is Lulu. And she is so pretentious and awful here. <laughs> She's like <laughs> every stereotype of a millennial that's way off base and horrible. And mm-hmm. um, as they're putting this show together, she keeps correcting him and telling him, like, oh, that's that's what we call simplistic thinking and using all these acronyms and over explaining all these new schools of thought that she learned um, to him and it was just the most annoying um, yeah well yes yeah, she was still yeah. painted as this you know Benny and Alex are like she's going to rule the world one day like she's painted as this forward-thinking poised character but yeah she was basically an epitome of what um, a a stereotype that millennials are trying to disprove that they're always pretentious and correcting and, and thinking about themselves. Um, Yeah. I was not a fan of Lulu either. And this chapter, this whole futurism idea um, of like how children will run the music industry. And um, the one thing that I thought was interesting that, um, she might have been onto something here was there's this idea of parrots and social media where basically there's secret plants of people sharing and advertising things under the guise of being like giving their personal endorsement to it. But there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, you, you are really selling out if you advertise um, via via social media. But now there is this idea of self-branding and um, there's all this stuff online now of like building your own personal brand and basically making a living out of living. <laughs> um, and that's so trendy and popular right now. So I thought that idea, and, but it's actually, it's not frowned upon. It's not secretive. It's very blatant and almost, well, definitely to the point of being obnoxious on social media where um, you're getting all of these people who are self-branded. And um, so that was the only futuristic thing that I found a little bit interesting, but the rest was very, um, yeah, it just kind of felt jumbled together and, and rushed and um, not really linked to anything else. But yeah, what were your thoughts on the futuristic <sighs> I think style? Was, I think this is where the book gets a bad rap as being about technology because it does yeah. bring up a, a, a couple things here, but it just felt like um, a 65-year-old imagining of the near future. It's so <laughs> it's all the most obvious futurism events. There's a concert in the footprint of the World Trade Center. Like they're still talking about 9/11 as being the most impactful. Um, significant, uh, you know, event of our life, but there's also vague allusions to some grand war, but that's never explained upon yeah, or jumped that was into. Very, very unexplained. Yeah. yeah. The ch- kids are called pointers because <laughs> they use these tablets and uh, devices, I guess, that they're pointing at things. There's overuse of acronyms. Um, <laughs> And then the most obvious annoying thing was that the younger generation can only communicate meaningfully via T, which is just texting. And um, they write in abbreviations and, and whatever. And I just thought that that was such a basic concept to harp on here. And mm-hmm. uh, it was being treated like it was a much more significant thought uh, than it really yeah. was. Yeah, and I think, like I said, it didn't come across to me that Egan was really trying to address themes of technology and how it shapes our lives at all when she wrote this book. But because it was about time and the passage of time, she included events from the past, the present, and the future. Um, and and I think this might be why we didn't 
really enjoy this chapter is because she didn't really value or um, she didn't really find a lot of meaning in the futuristic chapters because she's a lot more interested in the characters and their relationships to one another. Um, but it was interesting that this was and this and the PowerPoint piece were the were the things that people tended to grab onto when reading this book. And therefore, um, and I think that's why she was in that Google interview, because they were interested in how she talked about technology in the book. But um, in reality, she that was a sort of byproduct of um, what she was intending to do with the book. Um, but I, interestingly enough, it, it sounds like it was one of the main reasons that she was awarded the Pulitzer. Um, like you have quoted in your notes here, the review committee says it was an inventive investigation of growing up and growing old in the digital age displayed a big hearted curiosity about cultural change at warp speed. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. That's not how the book struck me at all um, with, with, the questions of what it means in the digital age. It seemed more of like a, um, like she said, a contemporary look at the passage of time and these themes that are found in literature across the board. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I think there was just an obsession in 2010, that being the yeah. time that smartphones were mm-hmm. exploding exactly. and starting to be, you know, just in every single person's pocket, and that did change the world. So I think there was just an obsession during that time yeah. Um, yeah. about how is this going to change us, um, and maybe that they were looking for pieces of insight where it, they're really isn't any significant insight about that specifically in this book. Right. But there's insight in many other ways. Like, um, just to now delve into some of the themes here, as we've discussed the passage of time and aging. Um, and she spoke, she has two, her epithet is two quotes from Proust, um, in the beginning of the book, which really sets it up as this idea of, um, how our lives are interconnected. Um, and how our stories uh, take shape and, and how time uh, is. I, I loved that it was so nonlinear in her telling of the story that it jumped back and forth between present and past and and in some small cases into future. Um, so I thought she did. I thought she really achieved her goal in that in following that theme and that abstract idea. And I think that thread did run well throughout the book. But do you think she addressed that topic well? It's tough. It sounds like that's a topic that you like to read about and think about and are interested in. Um, to me, the passage of time seemed like a pretty general umbrella. If you're trying to connect 13 short stories together, it seemed like that would be an easy theme to kind of slap on as a top coat of paint to make everything cohesive. Um, but it's also not something that I'm super interested in. I love to delve into like one character, learn all about their backstory and maybe how they progress over time. Um, so I don't know that it was super effective for me. It didn't make me think about my life what the passage of time in my life is like. Um, but I did still enjoy reading all the stories, so I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, and I guess the other piece of that that interested me is this interconnection between lives, um, how we jump from being the be, being on one protagonist's point of view, and then all of a sudden we're in a peripheral character's point of view, and the protagonist has become the peripheral character. That also really intrigued me because... We're, we are all the protagonists in our own stories, right? Um, so to sort of be jump, jolted out of that protagonist ideal into the peripheral, um, it, it makes me more, I don't know, I, I guess I related it to my own life in that way. I'm always really interested in hearing people's stories and backgrounds and this idea of, of how we, are so, we can be so randomly connected. Um, and that happens a lot when you travel, actually. You run into people who, um, like I would run into people who I met in Slovenia at a hostel kitchen it, six weeks later in a hostel kitchen in Bosnia. And like out of all of the places to go in Europe, you run into the same people. And it's just, 
to me, that idea of how we are characters in each other's stories and what role we might play in another person's story has always really fascinated me. So that, I think, might be why I liked this novel so much as well. And that, I that I 100% agree, was absolutely well communicated and executed here. Um, there was so many instances where you see that a small action on behalf of one character comes back to affect uh, another narrator once they're the main focus of the book. I thought that was really elegantly done and nice, and I totally agree with you that that is interesting to think about. We all live our lives as though we're the protagonist, but we're a sub-character mm-hmm. in everyone else in our life story. So I, I loved that part of the book. Well, cool. And then um, another theme I see noted here is the theme of suicide, as we talked about, um, we have Rolf, who is the son of Lou, who committed suicide at age 28. We come to find out we have Bosco's suicide tour, as we discussed, and the question of, of Rob, Sasha's friend from college, who drowns. Um, and I asked you this question. Do, do you think that he was committing suicide in that moment because he had attempted previously Um and I think you have noted here um, there was a lot that we still didn't know about Rob that made it more of a question that maybe we would never understand or maybe he didn't even realize um, he was doing at the time. Yeah, suicide just came up so frequently through this book that I thought it was significant. Um, Sasha also had a suicide attempt in her past. Yep, that's um, right. And I thought it was sort of interesting, given the whole passage of time and interconnected lives theme of the book, that it seemed, especially in the case of Bosco, where he's going on this suicide tour, um, the book portrayed suicide as like a way to take back control Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. the, I hate this term, from the goon squad, which is what Jennifer Egan refers to as the passage of time. So it seemed Mm -hmm. to me like, it was really drawn as the only way that you can stop time from passing is to like opt out. And I'm not sure how I felt about that message, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but it was significant enough in the book and came up enough. I thought we should talk about it. Yeah. And there was one quote that struck me when Bosco's ta- trying to pitch this idea to Stephanie about a suicide tour. He says, suicide is a weapon that we all know, but what about an art? And yeah, that I was like, oh God, no, 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 no. I, and I don't know if that was something that Egan was trying to present, present this as a very grotesque idea or, or unfortunately it seemed to me more like she was intrigued by this idea of which, which, yeah, I completely disagree with. Um, I think that sometimes people might have motivations that are sort of vengeful, vengeful when they take their own lives. But in reality, um, I think that she completely missed a lot of uh, the real pain and um, isolation and, um, and uh, yeah, the consequences of suicide and, and the motivations behind it. I don't think that suicide is a weapon, um, but um, yeah, that, that It it was interesting that it kept coming up in the book, and I think that she was a little bit irresponsible. Well, not a little bit. I think she was irresponsible with the topic of suicide in this novel. Yeah, I don't think it was handled that great. Um, And I don't think this was on your list, but addiction also struck me as a theme in this novel. Um, We come into addiction quite a few times, actually, and this might be tied to the theme of, of music, and the music industry as well, because we see addiction um, prop up a lot in, in that aspect. Um, but there was one quote, uh, we, we hear Jocelyn's point of view. Um, Jocelyn, as we mentioned before, was um, in a relationship with Lou. And in that chapter, I, I note this one's quote really stuck with me. Jocelyn needs to drink more than me to get buzzed. And when she feels the booze hit, she takes a long breath like she's finally herself again. Um, and you can see even at age 15, like that is the bones of an addict. Like that is, um, this idea that she needs that 
the booze or the high to to feel comfortable in her own skin. And then later when we hear her chapter, um, she's now sober and living with her mother, but we hear some of her story of how she did become an addict and, um, and, and her struggles with that um, and how it's a constant struggle for her. Um, and again, with Scotty's, um, Scotty <laughs> from his chapter, we haven't talked a lot about him, but he was a really interesting character. He was in the, the punk band with Benny. Um, he ends up getting the girl that Benny liked um, but later we see him as an adult and he's um, it's I think it's pretty apparent that he has some sort of mental illness that's that's not made quite clear. Um, but he's also self-medicating with alcohol. Um, he eats very little and he has his oh, it was some sort of disgusting booze. Was it Jägermeister? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but. But um, we hear this whole chapter from his perspective, and it's very apparent that he is treating his mental illness with alcohol. Um, but what other takes or what other themes and references to addiction did you find in the novel? Well, Sasha's addiction, uh, not to a substance, but to stealing, um, is like the one constant in her life. We find early in her life she makes money by stealing and, and selling it to basically a pimp for him to turn around and um, turn a profit. And then later in her life she steals um, wallets or trinkets just to provide her comfort. Um, and that's something that she's trying to break uh, in herself. So it seems like, you know, Sasha moves across multiple countries, multiple relationships, um, but like her kleptomania is something that really stays with her through all the passage of time. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, even when she's older and she has a family with children, um, she kind of makes these projects out of different objects and things, but it didn't seem like did you say it didn't seem like her kleptomania was still there, but she had this desire still to find solace and comfort in in objects and in creating things out of them. But yeah. she had find, found a more healthy way um, to deal with that. But, yeah, do you think Egan was trying to tell us something about addiction or do you think she was using it as um, as a a way to explore more facets of these characters. Um, I sort of think given, given that the novel was set in the music industry, that's simply a path that, that opens a lot of its participants up to those type of temptations. So I think in order to tell a realistic story about the music industry and aging in that industry, you have to address substance abuse and, and drug use to paint a realistic portrait. What um, sorts of messages do you think she had about music, if any? Yeah, that's one thing that even though that was the setting for the book and that a lot of these characters were connected by their careers in music and in the music industry, I don't know how much the novel really said about it. I suppose in the last um, chapter, Scotty is redeemed by his music in a way where he starts playing and everyone yeah. feels connected by it and it was a way for him to take back his youth and to temporarily pause the passage of time. Um, but I didn't really feel any other significant messages about music here. Um, it was less about music than the synopsis would have you believe, in my opinion. Yeah. I think so too. It seemed more like she was using it as like that. This was just the industry that her main protagonist happened to work in. And, um, maybe it's just a love for music that connects us through, connects people through time. Um, this, how some of these bands, these older bands and things were, um, sort of a connecting thread, um, that allows people. And it also transports people in time. Um, hearing old songs and having these connections to a moment in their lives that was triggered by this experience with a song or with, a, with music. Um, but that being said, I think she, she says in the, in um, a few interviews that she didn't write this for the music industry, mm. although it's a connecting thread, but, um, and I think it's good that she didn't do that. I think that she was able to tap into something, um, 
that included it, but was went beyond it. Um, but it sounded like the music industry sort of took an interest in it. And then or maybe the marketing aspect of it. Um, they wanted to make it uh, appealing to that demographic of readers. And that's how it was portrayed more so than it was intended. Yeah, it's a tough title. So maybe they just had to get over that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, Sorry, we talked a little bit about why it was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. So um, not that we are qualified to say whether it was deserving or not, but I guess I'll put my thoughts out there anyway. I do think it was. I think it's a really ambitious novel, and not everything in it is successful, but uh, it, it was a joy to read. It drove along quickly, and I thought its experiments with form uh, were compelling enough to be deserving of recognition and attention. Yeah, I think I also think that it was very deserving, but not for the reasons that were stated in the reviewers' comments. I think because um, they they like the one what we put it earlier about it addressing the digital age and technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was just so unique and inventive, and she did it. It was well done um, in that way. Like she. She went with her gut on what would be um, to avoid the gimmicks, but to still include something unique and fresh into her writing. And her writing itself is so sharp and um, her descriptions are um, they're very true to what she's describing, but it's in a very fresh way. Um, Like this scene, I'm just going to one example of this when Jocelyn and Ree go to see Lou as he's dying in his home um, in Jocelyn's chapter. Um, when they walk inside, Jocelyn says, it reminds me of being in the hospital. Not the smell exactly. The hospital doesn't have carpets, but the dead air, the feeling of being away from everything. And then later when they're in the room with him, she says, the TV is new, flat and long, and its basketball game has a nervous sharpness that makes the room and even us look smudged. So, just her her writing is so direct and to the point and well captures the scene and makes you um, feel like you're there in the room with them. Um, so yeah, I was I was a big big fan uh, of of that that part of it. And so I think you and I will both agree that we recommend this book. <laughs> yes, read this, not Manhattan Beach. No, don't read Manhattan Beach <laughs> unless so you're like boring. really obsessed with that era. But even then, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, one interesting fact: this was this uh, book was going to be made into an HBO series at some point. Did you see anything about that online? In like 2011, it was picked up for an HBO series, but it never happened. No, so, but that would be so smart. This would be a oh, smash hit. I know. I wonder. I wonder what happened with that. Um, so uh, I just have a few recommendations myself if you liked this um, and this sort of Proustian approach to a narrative. Um, there's two works uh, by Maggie O'Farrell that uh, one of them explicitly also has an epithet to, of Proust in, in the beginning. It's called The Vanishing Act of Esme, Esme Lennox. Um, and it, it's, it takes place in Edinburgh, in um, modern day and also in the past um, following the story of two women who are connected and related. Um, And uh, I thought that also had a very similar vein of, of the passage of time and what we understand of other people's stories. Um, And then her, her uh, memoir, which is called I am, I am, I am, um, which is also, uh, it jumps back and forth in time a bit and has, uh, it's a very unique perspective in that she tells her life story through 17 close encounters with death. Um, so I thought those both fit within the vein of something a little bit different, um, that focuses on the abstract concept of time and interrelations. Um, what, what book would you, uh, recommend if, if for people who liked this? Well, first I have I Am, I Am, I Am on my bookshelf, so I'm excited to read that next, knowing that it might be similar to this. Um, But I just went with 
um, a classic, one of my favorites, The Sound and the Fury by Faulkner. Um, it has obviously nonlinear storytelling with changing perspectives, and I think it's kind of like best in class um, for, for that type of storytelling, and um, it captures the different voices of the narrators and the perspectives so beautifully. I don't need to sell Faulkner, but it's one of my favorites. Can I admit something? I still haven't read any Faulkner. It's so atrocious. I love The Sound and the Fury. It goes down so easy. It, it reads like a modern novel. I'm obsessed. Okay. And coming from you, I know um, like y- you have a very specific time period where you enjoy books, so that must mean it's really good. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so. I only like to read modern literature, so I'm very picky. <laughs> well, thanks for talking to me about... Um, a visit from the Goon Squad. Actually, this is a rare case where we do know the next book that we will be reading, and it will be The Immortalists, which was published in 2017. So I look forward to that discussion. Thanks, Laura. Take Thanks. care. Bye, Bye. everyone.